you could turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. I don't normally introduce my text first, but I think it would be best this morning to do that for us. Verse number 1 of Romans chapter 10, and Paul is writing, he says this, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. You ever get a song stuck in your head? When I was in college here, there was a guy who's now a director of a camp, and I remember one time he told me, and I don't, my, my, I, there's songs for everything. You know, the song that we sang today, maybe those words get in your head. I listened to a song the other day on the way here, and that, that song has been stuck in my head, and uh, th- that just happens. Well, when, when he was around me, I don't, know, I don't know how it happened, but I guess I would sing a phrase of a song. And he told me one time, he's like, every time I'm around you, you get some song stuck in my head. And, uh, and I don't know if it's a person that makes that happen for you. And, and so I try to sometimes do that to my kids, make them think of a song and get it stuck in their head. And, and maybe, it's because, uh, maybe it's because of some of the Patch the Pirate songs that I heard growing up. And I found myself uh, being, trying to be diligent, doing something and singing a Patch the Pirate song about you know, cleaning up a mess that I made. Or, uh, you know, I, I don't really sing the song about Wiggle Worm, but it probably would apply to me. I don't sit still very well. But those songs are, are helpful in those types of occasions. But I remember as a youth pastor, you, sometimes you take your kids on trips, whether you go to a college or you go to camp. And usually for us, camp was, uh, you know, a, quite a drive and a bus makes it longer. And there were times when you'd have an entire bus singing the jingle to some inane commercial. <laughs> and, you know, I'm like, look, junior hires don't even know what a credit report is let alone singing a jingle about a credit report or some insurance, uh, some insurance jingle. You know, there's, it's, it's uh, the demographics that watch certain things on television, and I watch college football, college basketball, and, and there seems to be a lot of insurance commercials on those things. And so even when my youngest was three, she would sing occasionally, Liberty, Liberty, Liberty. <laughs> and uh, she doesn't know what she's talking about. And I don't know if that's the market that they're looking for as three-year-olds. Maybe they're just trying to get it stuck in her head for the rest of her life. At my house, my wife makes, uh, makes a great chicken parm. And uh, my favorite football player of the last 30 years is Peyton Manning. And I think he's, I think he's a great football player. I think uh, he didn't have always the coaching or the players that some other players have had, but that's just my opinion. But I also think he's one of the funniest guys uh, ever, ever to put a football jersey on. And he was in those State Farm commercials. And there was one particular one. And, uh, and he was making himself a sandwich, but it was a chicken parm sandwich. And so he sang, chicken parm, it tastes so good. And so every time at our house... That we have chicken, the girls know it's coming. <laughs> and, uh, and it's either before or after we pray for the meal, it'll come. And, and I think it's my youngest now is starting to sing it with me. And so maybe I can have that stuck in their head. But as I think of this verse, I honestly think that Paul had a phrase stuck in his head. And it's a phrase that all of us ought to have stuck in our heads. Let's read the verse again. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is, here's the phrase, that they might be saved. I imagine that as Paul went from city to city, as a new town, a new city, a new place came upon the horizon, that as he saw that, he imagined the people in that city and thought, 
that they might be saved. Why else was he putting his life at risk going from place to place? Was so that they might be saved. When he would walk through a town and see people gathered maybe beside a river, he would think that they might be saved. As, as he walked by a synagogue, he thought that they might be saved. And specifically, yes, in this passage, he's talking about Jewish people, but it's not like Paul was like, yeah, they're Gentile. I don't really care about them. No, we know that that's not true from his ministry. But we can have this heartbeat that they might be saved. Sometimes we can have that heartbeat when we go on a door-to-door visitation, but it's a lot harder to do it at that time than it is when you go to work. You rub shoulders with those people. Those are the people that you need to have the heartbeat that they might be saved. Oh, I know some of them are annoying. I've talked to some of you, and, and depending on where you work, and you'll say, look, I feel like I'm babysitting the whole time because they won't do their job. I know of a place in town where many students have worked where when I was a dean of men, people would, guys would tell me, like, look, there's this one guy who's literally, he's trying to see how many days he can stay in the break room before he gets fired. And I think it was two weeks. You know, that's amazing. It's amazing. I'm like, man, I would be bored out of my mind to stay in one room. I'm like, look, I, I would rather stock shelves than be in a one room like that. And, I, you know, it's harder work sometimes not to work in those situations than it is just to put the thing on the shelf and go down the aisle. Whatever you got to do. And it can be frustrating. And how they treat you can be frustrating. Do you think Paul wasn't mistreated? Do you think Paul wasn't frustrated at the the very people that he was trying to reach? That they could take the same scripture that he had, but twist it a different way? Or or stand behind their lecterns in their different places where they would would teach or, or speak what they thought rather than what God thought? And he's thinking, you're abusing the scripture. You're twisting it. Because his heartbeat was that they might be saved. What I would like... It's for myself and for you, no matter where you go, that that's the attitude that you have. When that person cuts you off in traffic, that you would think, you know what, that they might be saved. Oh, I know. I know. It's frustrating. But you know what? They need to be saved, most likely. Now, if it's an ambassador student, <laughs> you might think they might need to be saved. <laughs> but you need to have that heartbeat. That phrase stuck in your mind, that they might be saved. Let's look at this verse. It says, brethren... My heart's desire. I believe the reason he starts that with brethren is because he's saying, hey, people, look, look, look out on the fields. They're white all ready to harvest. Look around you. There's people everywhere that need to be saved, that this is Paul's plea to them to get involved. You, know, you don't have a heartbeat that they might be saved unless God gives that to you because we are naturally selfish people. We are naturally self-centered people. And for the only way for us to have that, it's not to manufacture. That's not really a heart, is it? It's just a, a, a mechanism then. It's robotic. We just do it because we're supposed to do it rather than doing that from the heart. And I believe that's exactly where Paul was. It's my heart's desire. But this is a plea that he's saying, look, this is what the Lord wanted. In John chapter 10 and verse 10, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I am come that they might have life and life more abundant. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I want this for the sheep. I want this for people. In Luke 19, 10, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. I think about John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world 
that he gave. His heart was for the world, so much so that he was willing to sacrifice his son. And I think about verse 17. For the Son of Man, the Son came not to enter the world, was not sent to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's what God wanted. That is his heartbeat. So when I was a student here, I graduated in 2004. There might be a little confusion about that. Jake came in, I don't know what it was, but Jake is way older than I am. (laughs) Way older than I am. And, uh, but he came after I did, even though we were, we were somewhat contemporary. But I graduated in the year 2004, so this is, this is my 20th year uh, anniversary, which seems crazy. And you'll be there one day. Um, you think you won't, but you will. But there was, in December of that year, there was a tragedy that happened in the world And I'm not downplaying, well, maybe I am a little bit, some tragedies, but we'll have a tragedy, a natural disaster where people will die, and it's always a tragedy. But they almost all pale in comparison to, in my lifetime, this event. And there was a tsunami out in the Indian Ocean. There was an earthquake that happened. It caused a tsunami in Indonesia. And uh, it was the third largest recorded uh, earthquake, at minimum a 9.1, but some say up to a 9.3, which is phenomenally large, and it caused this tsunami. Now, they say that it was the energy, some of this is hard to understand, like I'm not an engineer, but the energy of 23,000 atomic bombs going off at the bottom of the ocean. What had happened was in that earthquake, those tectonic plates were pushing against each other, and they just popped. And when that explosion happened, that pressure was released with those tectonic plates. They said, if you had been there at the point of uh, the epicenter of that, at the top of the ocean, that there would have instantaneously been a 600-foot wave pop out of the ocean. I, I wish I could have seen that, but it would have been the last thing I saw. I, I, I can't, because what goes up instantly at 600 feet comes down instantly at 600 feet. And then goes right back up again. I mean, you're, you're helpless out there. But that wave, they said that it caused literally a ripple effect to, to all the water that is connected. All the oceans had some kind of a movement because of that earthquake. And so when those waves hit the shores of Indonesia, there were recorded 100-foot waves. You know, 250,000 people died. 250,000 people. That's, that's an enormous amount of people. That's a tragedy. Well, there's some stories that came out of that. One was a man, but one was a little girl. Uh, she was some grade school age, and she had written a paper on tsunamis. And so she and her family were visiting the coast of one of those Indonesian countries, and she noticed that, that the water had receded greatly because when a tsunami happens, uh, the water recedes. The water just doesn't come out of nowhere. It, it goes out into the ocean, and that water is used to create that wave. But when that water receded, there were, it receded so fast that it literally left fish on the sand. And it receded further than it normally would for, for a tide. And so people were going out there and picking up large shells and people were going out there and picking up fish. I mean, you think about it. And in many of those countries, that is your livelihood. Every fish that you get is one that you're going to sell in the market that evening. And if you don't catch a fish, you didn't make a dollar regardless of how long you were out there. So some people are thinking, man, this is, this is my life right here. And some people are thinking, hey, look at these shells. They're beautiful. I can add this to my collection. It's nice and shiny, etc." But she told her family, look, the reason that water is going out there is because there's a large wave coming 
and we need to get out of here. You know, they had to believe her. They had to say, well, you know, she did write a paper and she says this is what she wrote her paper about. How could she even make this up? It must be true. And so they believed her and they began to spread the word. And whether it was uh, the man somewhere else that knew this was going to happen or whether it was that little girl, uh, they say some 1,500 people were rescued by getting them to higher ground. Now, I think about that. That's where Paul is. Paul is saying, this job is too big for me. This job's too big for me. I'm only one person in one place at one time, and not everybody's going to believe me. But God has you where he has you. And you touch the lives of the people around you. Let me encourage you. When you leave this place, find a place where you can rub shoulders with people that don't know Christ. Because you'll find yourself in a similar bubble like ambassador where it is difficult sometimes to know lost people. And therefore, it's difficult to care for lost people. You know, part of the message in Matthew chapter 13 of the, of the soil, the parable of the soils, is that soil needs to be prepared. There's a reason it was a farming application. Because often seed fails, not because of the seed, but because of the soil. And sometimes... Sometimes it's because the soil is not prepared. Well, whose job is that? It's the sower. My girls and I are part of a group. Um, we actually, we study a martial art and we do that par partially. One of our main reasons is so that we can be around people that don't know Christ, so that we can build relationships with them. And we're, we're making some small inroads and God has binded uh, the hearts of at least one or two of those people to us. And I don't know if God's using my cancer situation for that, but I know that through another person, I find out they're asking about me. One of them has, has come and, and visited our church and we're trying to get the gospel to them. But sometimes it takes a while to prepare soil. It takes a choice of that person. But Paul is saying, look, I can't touch everybody's life. You think about that. What if there's only one person in North Carolina giving the gospel? That's not enough. What if there's only one person in Shelby giving the gospel? That's not enough. And it often takes more than one person with the same person to plant that seed, to water that seed, to nurture that seed. And I don't know where you are in that lineup, but God is asking us to get involved in that harvest. That is why he left us here. You know, somebody... Somebody said, somebody that I don't read after, but I know that they uh, say flashy statements to sell books. And one of the flashy statements they said was, the purpose of the church is not the Great Commission, but it's to worship. And I thought, well, that's interesting, because I don't remember a command in the New Testament to worship, but I know five to give the gospel. You're going to naturally worship God. How could you not? You're going to follow him without that? No, that's part of it. But this is Paul's plea. Sometimes we can get caught spending our time picking up fish. Well, this is my job. This is my livelihood. If I don't get that fish laying there on the sand, then my family's going to go hungry. You know, sometimes there's more important things than picking up fish. There's the people that need to be rescued from the waves that are coming. Sometimes we can get caught up picking up another seashell. We can say, yes, but I have this opportunity that I've never had before. Sometimes there's more important things than picking up seashells. And the reality that we all know is that hell is coming for people if they don't know Christ. And our heartbeat needs to be that they might be saved. 
Not for me to pick up another fish and make another dollar. That's in God's control. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Do you really trust that promise? Then seek first his kingdom. Seek to fill it. It's Paul's plea, but it's also Paul's passion. He says, brethren, look at the verse, my heart's desire. My heart's desire. This is his absolute passion. Enough so that in chapter 9 in verse 1, he says, I say the truth. And he doubles down. In Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow where? In my heart. For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I'm not there. I don't know that I could ever be there. That's a person whose heart has been touched by God that they love others that much that they could wish that they were a curse from Christ. Now, I could see that for my immediate family, but, but I'd have a hard time doing that. That's one of the reasons why you've got to mix with people that don't know Christ, so that you can learn what their burdens are. Ask them, what can I pray for you about? What, is there anything that you're struggling with that, that I can bring to God? Anything I can help you with? How are they going to see the love of Christ from a distance? It's Paul's passion. I remember growing up, I loved Christmas, still love Christmas, different reasons now. But I remember there was a particular Christmas that uh, every time I went to Walmart, I wanted to go to one place, the toy aisle. This was back in the day when remote control cars were, were new. I had asked, well, I don't know if I'd asked, but I had gotten a remote control car a year or two before. But you have to understand, there was a lot of lying going around on commercials. Because you'd see this car and you're like, oh, that's really cool. And you'd see the remote and you're like, oh, that's really cool. And then you get it in the package and you can't tell by the package until you open it up that there's like a four-foot cord from the remote to the car. I'm sorry, that's not remote control, is it? That's connected control. And you've got to follow it around like a dog on a leash, right? That's, and they lacked so, so much power. You know, they just didn't have what you had hoped that they would have. Well, now we were into the years where you had real remotes and these remotes, uh, they were shaped like a gun, which makes everything better, right? <laughs> they had a trigger, which makes everything better. If you push that trigger forward, it would go in reverse, which is kind of counterintuitive. If you pulled it back, it would go forward. And this, this particular one had an extra little click. And if you hit that click, it was turbo. And so it would go faster, which really, you know, you just slow it down for the other one. It's not really a turbo. And, uh, and this, this one was not a remote control car. It was a remote control truck. That also makes everything better. And, uh, and it, was, uh, it had big tires and big wheels and kind of knobs on those tires. And it, it had a, a wheelie bar because if in turbo at the right time, and the right, it could pop a wheelie. And, and so, you know, we had this little hill at our house. And I was like, man, I wonder if this thing can go up a hill. And in the commercial, they've got it going over a ramp. And it, they named this truck, and they named it such a great name, The Hammer. And I wanted that. I, I, you still, I'm 42 years old, and I remember details about this thing, right? Now, I don't know where that thing is. I took it apart one time, tried to take my dad's weed eater and remote control car. <laughs> I, thought, I thought the power that I could get from this thing would be phenomenal. Um, it, my dad's weed eater remained untouched because I realized I'd have to, I'd have to permanently ruin it, and I knew that wasn't going to go well. But that, it was the thought that counts, right? <laughs> but every time I went to Walmart, I wanted to take one or both of my parents to see that. 
So they knew there's only one thing I want. And so that they would be reminded every time, this is it. Not that one, not just this one. I, you know, I, I probably said things like, that one's terrible. This one's awesome, you know. you gotta, you got to show them that. And it dominated my life. You know, we can look back at times when we were younger and then you see it under the tree and you're like, ah, this box is about the same size as Walmart and you're just dominated by those thoughts, right? It's not like we're much different. It's just the things that dominate our minds are different, right? And maybe what dominates your mind is the Valentine's banquet. Maybe what dominates your mind is the person connected to the Valentine's banquet for you. Maybe what dominates your mind is a vehicle, a real vehicle with, you know, a real truck that... You know, I don't know. But maybe what dominates your mind is graduating. There's more important things to dominate your mind. That they might be saved. Why are you here? Oh, you know, sure, mom and dad might have made you come, but why did God save you? So that, you know, so you can just waste your life doing something else? You know, whatever you do in life, I don't care if you wire houses or set toilets, that they might be saved. You have an opportunity to rub shoulders with people doing what God will have you to do so that they might be saved. God has put you in their life so that they might be saved. And you are a part of that. This was Paul's passion. This was the passion of Christ. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Have that passion. This was Paul's preaching. If you look at the rest of most of the chapter, Paul is preaching the gospel. And he's saying, how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they have faith except the word of God is preached to them? Romans 10, 17, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. He talks about that preaching, how that it's not the works that they're seeking to do to build up their own righteousness. That is still a prevailing thought. You don't have to be in a false religion to think that thought. People all over the world have come up with, you know, they, there's this inherent knowledge that there is a God. There is an inherent knowledge that, that there's going to be some kind of a judgment. And so people will naturally think, if I'm mostly a good person, then that's all that I need. Now, that's in their own reasoning or the reasoning that somebody else has told them. But they have that thought. And Paul is saying, look, the Jewish people have that in spades. That they, they have this religious system that God gave them to teach them theology, but they're using it to try to build their own righteousness, and that's just not possible. Look here, it comes down to this. You can do all the good that anybody's ever done, but you have to deal with sin. You have to. What about your sin? Well, that helps people. You know, that's very logical. All the good I can do, but I still have sin in my life. How can I get that forgiven? Well, that's only through one way. That's through Jesus Christ. And that's what he said. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Why? Because Christ went down to the grave and he rose from the grave. I love that phrase. Uh, look with me at verse number seven. Who shall descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is, uh, I, I skipped a verse. Verse 9, say, but the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. In other words, how do I get righteousness by faith? This is how it speaks. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up again from the dead. This phrase troubled me, troubled me, and I found out that it is, it's a Hebrew phrase that they would say. In fact, you can find Solomon having said this phrase, and it was a phrase that they would say, like, how many of you can go to heaven? Right now, apart from 
wrong means, right? But how many of you can go to hell and come back or go to heaven and come back? Those are impossible things, are they not? You can't do that. And so that was a phrase that they would say to, uh, you know, like we would say the, the phrase, the rubber meets the road. You know, we, we all instantly understand what that means, but if you try to explain it to somebody that doesn't know your language, it, it really is difficult. Well, this is kind of similar, but it's describing something that's impossible. And so, you know, you may, your roommate might say today, I'm gonna, you know, of guys, I'm going to ask so-and-so to go to the banquet with me. And you're like, yeah, you think you can go to heaven and come back right now? <laughs> you're like, that's not possible. You don't have a shot. That's the idea of this phrase. And he's saying, don't say that it's impossible to have righteousness for free because Christ did it for you. And I love that the Hebrews were saying this thousands of years before Christ came because what did Christ do? He went to hell and he came back. He went to heaven and he's coming back. Right? Isn't that amazing? And so the whole time they're using this phrase about something that's impossible that Jesus does. And he says, look, Jesus did this to bring him down from above or to bring him up from the dead. He did that. He extends his righteousness to you. So it's not about the good things that you do. You've got to deal with your sin, but he's going, to, he's going to get rid of that and replace it with his righteousness. You say, why are you preaching that to us? Because I know that in Bible colleges, there are people that struggle with this. And maybe it's because you've never come to God. There's not been a time where you came to Christ and said, look, I am a sinner and I need that forgiveness and I need your righteousness. And I'm telling you today, don't put that off. Don't do that. Talk to to a roommate. Talk to a teacher. Talk to me. Talk to Brother Jake. Talk to somebody. Maybe you're just struggling with it. I've seen guys that struggle with things. I I remember one time uh, we had an opening revival. And, and I'm a shortcut kind of guy. And so I was probably going from the cafeteria uh, to the commons. And so I went through the gym. And why not, right? Go through the gym, shoot a basket, and keep going. And I came out that back door, and there was a guy right behind that back door, and he was crying. And God had been dealing in his heart during the opening revival about his salvation. You know, he, we dealt with that. And from that point on, as far as I know, I don't think he ever struggled again with it. Why? Because he dealt with it. Why struggle with something that you can deal with? Nobody's going to shame you for that. We're going to rejoice with you for that. So let me say, do that. Do that. This is what Paul was all about so that people might be saved. He was telling them. You don't have to always tell it the same way. You can tell your testimony. Paul always was telling his testimony, how God had changed his life. Like you're an American. You rub shoulders with American. Well, most of you are. Well, tell them how God changed your life. Tell them to say, hey, look, I'm going to tell you about something that I get excited about because this was me, but this is now me, and let me tell you what happened in between. And you might resonate with them. It may be that the thing that really clicked in your mind is really going to click in their mind, but if you don't say it, no one's going to know. Rub shoulders with people who aren't saved that they might be saved. Speak to people that aren't saved so that they might be saved. This was his passion. It was his preaching, but it was also his prayer. Notice back in verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. His prayer to God. I don't know how often he prayed that they might be saved, but he did. And a roommate, my freshman year, of course I had a roommate every year. (laughs) Uh, This year, this this is when when we still own the, the Clipper over here, which... Hands down, best dorm. Anybody ever lived there? Probably agree with me on that. Doesn't look like it. You wouldn't think it, 
but it was. And one of the reasons why is because how many roommates we had. So I think I had six roommates. So that's seven of us in the same room. And you're like, that's terrible. No, it was not. In fact, um, Dr. Beale at one time, remember, came into our room and apologized for all the people that he put in our room. And every room up there had seven, but for the specific people that were put in our room. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if you remember that apology, but you did. I- I'll not forget it. And I'll not say exactly why from the platform, but that's just the way it was. But our room was extremely entertaining. <laughs> put it that way. People would, I'm not lying to you when I say people would come several nights a week to sit in a chair and watch what went on in our room. <laughs> it's just, it was that crazy. But we had, we had a, a cross-section of humanity <laughs> in that, and, uh, and we mostly got along. But, uh, yeah, we mostly got along. Most of the time, I would say at least three nights a week, someone was laughing to tears in our room. That's just, that's just the way it was. Uh, it's just how God placed that together. But I remember one of my roommates, we had an outside wall with the fire escape right there. And so there were, I don't know, I think there was two windows, but I remember one window, and uh, I'm a firm believer that freshmen should have a top bunk, okay? And here's why. If you do it once, you'll only do it once. The rest of the time, you'll be on the bottom. But if you do it the other way, you could, you could be a top bunk for four years. So we were on the top bunks. I was up against this wall, no window, and my friend was up against that wall with a window. And so that's kind of a negative because you got light coming right in. Well, what that light afforded, and I remember every Thursday night we had room prayer, and every Thursday night that we had room prayer, he would ask for us to pray for his dad, that his dad would be saved. And you know I can tell you every single night. The lights would go off. He was laying in bed. He'd turn over and get on his hands and his knees. What do you think he was doing? Yeah, he was praying. What do you think he was praying for? Yeah, yeah. Because his heart was that he might be saved. And I knew that other family members of his were praying for years and years and years. I wish I could say I prayed as faithfully as, as they did, but I know that I prayed. One day I got a text. Yeah, th- that's the best text you can get, by the way. That his dad was getting baptized because he'd been saved. You know, his dad had been in services here time and time and time and time and time and time and time again, hearing the gospel at Messiah concerts, at graduations, and it was like, what in the world? <laughs> you know, how do you not get saved and all that? You know that it was a regular church service. He always attended church with his family. It was a regular church service. During the song service, he looked at his daughter and he said, I need to talk to you. And that was it. That was all it. Somewhere in his mind, he said, all right, this is what I need to do. You know, God changed his life. That's exciting because that's prayer. Can I tell you this? If you don't pray for lost people, don't tell me you care about them. There's no way that you do. You know some. And if you don't, you should be ashamed of yourself. Seriously. They are everywhere. Get involved in their lives. Find out what they need. Pray for them. Tell them you pray for them. I don't know what effect that that makes in their lives. But I know that God's working because of it. You know, there's people that you may pray for for over a decade, but that's fine. That's fine. God's going to use that to affect your heart as well. But if you don't pray for them, you don't love them. But this was Paul's passion. Obviously, 
because he prayed for it. This is the outworking of that. Do you have a heart for them? So several years ago, I went on a missions trip. I try not to make this a hobby horse, but it is an illustration that I have for this. And I went to Madagascar. And when we were studying about that and finding out more details, the closer we got, we found out that it was not going to be safe. It was going to be a dangerous place to go. And the danger got to be where some people were saying, maybe you shouldn't go. Um, people in the country were saying, you can't do the things that you're doing. It is not safe. There are bandits out there. There is no government out there. There is no police out there. there is, it, is, it is the wild west out there. You just can't do what you're going to go do. We really believe this is what God wanted us to do. And I remember I was sitting in what is now uh, well, somebody's office, and I was looking at the wall. And honestly, I was writing letters to my daughters and to my wife. And I thought, well, this would be a good thing to do. You know, I have my insurance policy, but I want them to know certain things. And that was the hardest thing that I've done emotionally in my life, is to, is to do that in sincerity, thinking this may be the last thing that I have to say to them. And actually, Mrs. Bailiff walked in on me, and she had to leave. <laughs> it wasn't fair. But I, looked at, uh, I was looking at the clock, and it took me days to do this because I just I couldn't finish. And uh, I'm looking at that clock, and I'm, and I'm like, Lord, maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe, maybe, maybe I shouldn't go. Am I, am I just doing this because this is kind of my personality? I like adventure, and, and I'll, I'm, I'll take risks. And is this why I'm doing this? Am I doing this now because I'm, a, I'm ashamed that if I were to back out, people would be like, well, why did you quit? Why did you back out? Lord, I don't want to do this for the wrong reasons. Maybe I should just quit. God has a way of speaking to our hearts in ways that we cannot argue with. And God said, if your daughters were out there and they didn't have the gospel, what would stop you? And I started crying. I said, God, that's not fair. Because you know, I don't need a boat. I don't need an airplane. I'll get there. When you love somebody that much, nothing will stop you. You know how we know that? Because Jesus loved us that much. God loved us that much that he would sacrifice the one he loved for us. That is the heart that he can give you so that you can say that they might be saved. What's stopping you today from loving the lost?